Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. It's good to be back, even though we thoroughly enjoyed our time away last month. We really did miss all of you. In fact, I think I've told some of you, you know, Sue was homesick within 10 days. I said, honey, we'll go down to the bus station. I'll buy you a ticket, but I'm, I'm not going home yet, you know. But, uh, but real quick, I did want to give a handout or shout out to uh, Daniel Ramos for sharing that first week we were gone. What a, what a, you know, I had seen him before, but man, what a powerful testimony of God's grace and power uh, through his life and through his family. Then for the past three weeks, our good friends at Hope Anthem, Pastor Jared and Lindsay, spelled with an E-Y, uh, let us uh, piggyback there and live stream their service, that, that their series, Death to Life, which I thought was excellent as well. But again, it is good to be back, and uh, I, uh, I, uh, I kind of feel like, you know, something's just missing here a little bit. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it is, uh, but I just kind of feel like, hey, Derek, could you... Um, could you uh, help me out here? Thank you, thank you. All right, now I uh, now I'm ready. Feel like I can start. Some of you think, "What in the world's going on?" We're becoming a cowboy church. Had you did you not get the memo? We're we're, we're becoming a, a cowboy church. Well, apparently someone with too much time on their hands, uh, photoshopped. I, I, I made the comment, I made the comment last week, you know, it's, can't wait to get back in the saddle. And, and so someone with way too much time on their hands uh, photoshopped, you know, this and, and, and put it on social media. It kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, and uh, no one's fessed up yet, but I've narrowed it down to two people. And, and they're both related to me, but, but I'll... <laughs> I'll leave it at that, but but no, we're not going. To. I thought about. I actually thought about. Uh, I actually thought about uh, calling Texas Roadhouse, see if I could get their birthday saddle. You know, they bring the saddle out. You know, when it's someone's birthday. I mean, that just would have put the icing on the cake there, right? So, I'll leave it at that. Got a question for you, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever been your worst enemy? Have you ever done something, maybe even said something, that in some way kind of uh, created a little bit of a, a shipwreck in your, in your life's journey, right? Let me answer that for you. The answer is, what, what is the answer? Yeah. Yes, yes. The answer is yes for all of us. At one time or another, all of us have done something that created a chapter or, or a time in our life that we wish we could go back and, and, and do over. In some cases, it's not just a chapter. In some cases, it might be like a decade. Some of you would like to go back and do your 20s over or your 30s over or, or your 40s over. The point being, we all have at one time or another been our own worst enemy. In fact, as I began preparing for this series, my problem wasn't coming up with an illustration. My problem was coming up with one that I wouldn't be too embarrassed to share with you. But no question, no question, one of my hall of shame became my own worst enemy events was uh, early on in our marriage. We were living in southwest Oklahoma. 
serving as youth pastors, and, and I made the decision to, uh, to change jobs and uproot my family and move to Minnesota. Why Minnesota? Well, we have some good friends up there we had gone to Bible school with, and they lived right outside of Minneapolis, and uh, that summer we had gone up to visit them for a vacation. And uh, while visiting with them, we went camping and went fishing, and of course it was wonderful, and it was about this time of year, uh, but up there it's like, you know, the weather was as beautiful as the scenery, you know, so we just had a wonderful time. So after we got back from vacation, I couldn't get Minnesota off my mind. In fact, I began praying, I began praying that God would move us up there. Now, I want to, to help bring some context to the story, I, I got to tell you something because I'll admit I was already kind of looking for an exit strategy. Uh, the passion, the excitement that I had for youth ministry when we first started at the church uh, wasn't there anymore, and I'm sure there were different reasons for that. Uh, one of those being uh, we were probably less than a year removed from having lost our second child to a full-term stillborn birth, and I've, I've kind of shared some of that story with you. And so, so I think we were, I know we were still grieving. Sue and I were kind of still grieving through that process. But uh, either way, I, I think, you know, we were kind of getting restless and the trip to Minnesota only fueled those restless feelings, at least inside of me, to the point that shortly after uh, we got home from vacation, I began to send resumes up to some churches uh, in Minnesota. Um, but even though I was convinced that God wanted us to move to Minnesota, Sue wasn't so sure. I mean, she was, look, she was willing to support me. She just wanted to make sure that I was hearing from God. She said, honey, I'll go wherever you go. I just want to make sure that, that you're hearing from God. But see, for her, this was a little bit bigger deal because she'd be leaving her parents because they lived in the same town that we were living in at the time. And uh, our oldest child and our, our only child at that time, daughter, uh, was uh, about two and a half. And, uh, but at that time, she was, she was Sue's parents' only grandchild. So as you can imagine, for them, it was an even more emotional thing. You know, their only grandchild, you know, that no good son-in-law dragging their only grandchild a thousand miles away. But uh, before long, one of the churches that I sent a resume to did contact us. We went up, we met with them, and it was a relatively new church, but they were growing. And uh, so they kind of let us know from the beginning, look, we can't bring you on full-time yet. You know, it it would be a bivocational job, uh, but the goal was to bring us on full-time eventually. And uh, so, you know, we kind of prayed about it. And our friends assured, uh, the friends that we had up there, he assured me that I could get a job where he worked. And uh, they, even, they even located a rental house for us right across the street from a lake. Now, if that doesn't have God written on it, I don't know what does, right? So surely this was God's will, right? Surely this was God's will. So we accepted the job offer. And a couple weeks later, I rented a 22-foot U-Haul, loaded up all our possessions, and uh, moved to Ham Lake, Minnesota, which is just north of Minneapolis. Now, see, when I tell the story, I remember the excitement of starting this new chapter in our lives, a brand new state, living in a house right across the street from a lake with bass and northern pike and walleye, you know. And, and so when I tell the story, that's kind of how I share it from that perspective. When Sue tells this story, she remembers, this is what she remembers. She remembers pulling out of her parents' driveway in the U-Haul, waving at her parents, who are standing in the driveway waving back with tears streaming down her dad's cheeks. That's what she remembers from that trip. So, uh, so I had to do a little damage control as we're pulling out of the driveway. You know, Honey, it'll be all right. Tr- trust me, it'll be all right. You know, Once we get up there and get moved in, every, everything's going to be fine. You'll see. So we move up there. 
And uh, within a couple of months, this is the hard part of the story to share. Within a couple of months, I began to feel uneasy about moving up there. And uh, it was kind of a weird thing because, you know, I'd, I'd invested so much time and prayer into, you know, this is what I wanted, you know. You ever heard that comment, be careful what you pray for? <laughs> this is what I wanted. This is what I've been praying about. But, uh, but I just, I don't know, I, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't suppress it. It just kept kind of rising up. But uh, I was just kind of looking for things to blame it on. I even blamed the weather. You know, we moved up there in February, which should have been my first clue, right? Who moves? God doesn't call, God doesn't call Billy Graham to move to Minnesota in the winter, right, in February. But, so that should have been my first clue. But, and, and remember, when we went on our vacation, it was in the summer, right? No one told me that uh, winters were nine months long in Minnesota. In fact, the year that, this is, this, I kid you not, the year that we lived there, May 1st, eight inches of snow. May 1st, eight inches of snow. I was used to southern Oklahoma winters. They last from like January to March, right, something like that. But part of me was thinking that that restlessness, that tension was, was just, you know, some spring fever, and it would be gone in, in, in a few weeks, you know, and, 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 and when I started slaying the bass and the walleye and the pike, it'd all be good. You know, it'd all be good. Well, spring came, and, and the fish were there, but the tension was still there as well. And as time passed, it, it, it became painfully obvious to me that Minnesota was not where we were supposed to be. But the really interesting thing is, when I finally humbled myself before God and my wife, and that was not a good, easy conversation, I'm just telling you up front, but when I finally humbled myself before God and my wife and owned up to the reality that I had become my own worst enemy and sold myself on something I wanted, not something that God wanted for me, for us, once I owned that, Seriously, almost immediately, I knew what God's will was for me. And that was to go back to school and finish my undergraduate degree. It was almost as if God was just waiting for me to let go. And when I did, I was able to see the situation through God's eyes. And I knew exactly what we were supposed to do. Three months later, our son Evan was born. And then two months after that, I rented another U-Haul loaded up our now-growing family of four, and headed back south to Waxahachie, Texas, and enrolled at Southwestern Assemblies of God University. So picture this, okay, picture this. From where we were living in Oklahoma before we moved to Minnesota, from, from Duncan, Oklahoma to Waxahachie is about 165 miles, two and a half hours. But when you become your own worst enemy, you turn a 165-mile, three-hour trip into a 1,900-mile, 10-month scenic route. And Sue, to her credit, extended me grace through that time. And honestly, look, the time that we spent out there, it was not a total loss. God really did use that time because we met some wonderful people who helped bring healing to us, you know, through that, that time of restlessness that we were. So it, wasn't, it really wasn't a total loss. So God was even able to redeem that 10-month uh, wilderness wandering, if you, if you will. But, uh, but that's my story. What's yours? What, what, what's your story? Who among us hasn't seen this play out in someone else's life? Maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe even a family member. Someone who, due to a wrong decision or poor choice or poor choices, ended up becoming their own worst enemy, derailing their life, their career, their marriage, maybe even their finances. 
And being on the outside looking in, right? See, you see it happening. It's easy to see this happening in someone else, right? You see it unraveling. You see these things, their life coming unraveled. And you're thinking two things. And I'll tell you what you're thinking because they're the same two things that I think. You're thinking, you know, you're doing this to yourself. You look at their, that, you say, you know, you're just doing this to yourself. But you're also thinking this. You're thinking, I would never do that. I, I would never do that. Let me remind you that we all have the potential to be our own worst enemy. We all have the potential to be our own worst enemy. You know how I know that? Because the one common denominator in all of your bad decisions was guess who? You. You were there for all of them, weren't you? Right? Hello? Aren't you glad you came to church today? You were the mastermind of all your failures. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, I think Pastor C needs to go on another sabbatical. <laughs> Bring back Kyle and Jared. They're, they're nicer than him. We don't, don't you go on away again for a while, Pastor? No, I, I do love you because that's why I'm, I'm telling you these things. So this morning and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at three principles that, that will help ensure that you don't and I don't become our own worst enemies. And the people we love and who love us most won't become their own worst enemy. And the first principle is this statement right here. Pay attention to the tension. Pay attention to the tension. Whenever you're faced with a decision or a choice to make, if there's any, listen, if there's any hesitation and pushback at all, you need to pay attention to that. Now, I need to give a disclaimer here at this point because in fairness, I don't know how it is with you, but with me, this can be difficult. Yeah. Because there are times, look, I, I've never had a tension-free big decision. Isn't that the same with you? I've never had a big decision where there wasn't a little bit of tension. So I, I kind of need to throw out a dis disclaimer here because, look, this isn't to say that God, that, that we should use our tension as the final metric for determining God's will. That, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sometimes God will use that tension to move us towards him as we seek guidance and clarity and wrestle with that trying to find his will. And, and it's during that time that we need to really pay attention to that tension. That, that's what I'm saying here. Looking back on that situation where I had convinced myself that moving to Minnesota was God's will. See, I, I knew there was some tension along the way. Probably the biggest tension sign that I should have paid closer attention to was, and I mentioned this earlier, was my wife and her reluctance to be on board with, with this move. Again, she wasn't opposed to it, she just wanted to make sure that I was hearing from God. But see, looking back on it, that's attention that I should have paid closer attention to in making any big or significant decision. If the option you're considering causes any sense of hesitation, stop and pay attention to that tension. Quit selling yourself. Quit selling yourself. I say selling yourself because that's exactly what we do when we become our own worst enemy. As soon as you see something that you want, what do you do? You start selling yourself on it. You do the same thing that I do. You start selling yourself on it. Well, this, this must be God's will, right? This must be God's will. And see, this is where we get ourselves into trouble because when we get our mind set on something so strongly and that we can convince ourselves it, 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 it's God's will, we become a real good salesman to ourselves, to ourselves, right? 
And we begin to lie to ourselves, just like many salesmen. And we begin to make up things, and then we choose to believe those things that we made up. In fact, you think about this. If a salesperson used the same pitch on you that you use on you when you're trying to sell yourself on something, you'd you'd think they're crazy. You'd walk out on them. You'd walk out on the pitch, right? So you're talking with a salesperson about making a purchase. And how about if they pull this line on you? Hey, if you get home and decide you don't like it, just donate it. That's it? That's your sales pitch, right? Or how about this one? Hey, I see you already have one that does everything this one does, but this one's newer. That's it? That's what you got? Seriously, you think about the sales lines that you use on yourselves. If if another person gave you that line, you can see right through it. What do you tell yourself when you start trying to sell yourself on a bad idea? What do you tell yourself? Listen to, listen to the self-talk. We're going to talk about this next week. Listen to the self-talk. Listen to the narrative that you create. Pay attention to the tension. Here's why. We rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. We rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. Right? You rarely have to talk yourself into knowing when something is the right thing. There's a story in the Old Testament that kind of illustrates how this paying attention to the tension was lived out one time in the life of a guy by the name of King David. But the story that we're referencing this morning actually took place before he became king. He had already been anointed king, but Saul was still sitting on the throne at that time. It's a fascinating story for a number of different reasons, not the least of which being it's one of the few places, maybe the only place in the Bible where it mentions that someone had to go to the bathroom. You also read your Bible sometimes, right? But when you read the story, you understand why that was an important part of the narrative. David, as many of you know, stepped onto the pages of history as a shepherd boy, a shepherd boy who was suddenly thrust into the spotlight when he went forward and defeated this giant named Goliath, and he became an overnight legend, literally became an overnight legend. And as a result of his popularity, the sitting king at the time, Saul, sort of takes him under his wings and kind of gives him a a prominent position, kind of mentors him, gives him him a a lead position in the military. And he also also gave David one of his daughters for a wife. So now Saul is David's father-in-law, which kind of adds another dynamic to this story. But as time goes by, Saul's approval ratings begin dropping while David becomes more and more popular with the people. Saul becomes threatened by his son-in-law's popularity with the people. So fearing that he'll lose his kingdom, (laughs) he sets out to get rid of David. And he kind of does this kind of subtly at first. In fact, he uses his daughter to kind of manipulate David with the goal of getting rid of him. He he keeps sending him out to fight. He sends him out to the front lines. Even as a a leader in the military, he still makes sure David is out on the front line, thinking that eventually that the odds will catch up and he will get killed in battle. But the plan backfires because David is such a skilled warrior that he always came back victorious, which only made him more popular in the eyes of the people. So one afternoon, Saul loses his temper and he tries to kill David. David recognizes his life is in danger and he flees out into the wilderness and becomes an outlaw, so to speak. But because he was so famous and popular with the people, all the other outlaws, all the other renegades and fugitives uh, that were in the region, they wanted to join with David. You know, all these people that didn't have a home to go to, you know. So before long, David's got his own small army, right? But it's a small army without a home because they're all outlaws. 
But Saul needs to eliminate David before he dies so that his son Jonathan can become the next king rather than David. One afternoon, he gets a report that David and his, Saul gets a report that David and his merry men have been spotted in the desert region of Engedi, which is this mountain area kind of by the, the Dead Sea with, with a lot of cliffs and caves and so forth. So Saul sets out with, get this, 3,000, 3,000 soldiers to go find David and his little band of merry men. They're gone for several days, and eventually they come to an area where, where some of the caves are at. And, and at one point, Saul has to use the bathroom. So, so he decides he's going to use one of these caves as his personal porta potty. So picture this. You got 3,000 men, soldiers, animals, marching along in, in this, this you know, caravan, right? The leader, Saul, he wouldn't be at the front. Of, he, the leaders never rode at the front. So he would be riding back from the front a little bit, right? But he has to go to the bathroom. Now, if you're just a regular soldier, you got to use the bathroom. You just kind of discreetly slip out and go take care of business and then catch up with the rest of the caravan, right? But when you're the king, no, no, no the whole caravan stops, right? The whole caravan stops so the king can go take care of his business. And that's exactly what happens. Saul gets off his mule, heads up to the cave to use the restroom. And if you've heard this story before, here's where the story takes a most interesting turn. Unbeknownst to Saul, David and his men were actually in that same cave, right? And so they, they, they were hiding there because they, they saw them coming. They were up high. So they're actually hiding in the cave, waiting for Saul's caravan to pass, and then they were going to come back and go the opposite way. So Saul and his, or David and his men were in, in the back of the cave that Saul comes up to use the restroom in, right? Now, you think about this. David's probably thinking, thank you, Jesus. Or, well, thank you, God, right? <laughs> thank you, God, right? Thank you, God. That, that Saul would choose the very cave that he's hiding in. Surely this is God's will. God has brought him to me so that I can get rid of him, kill him, and then I will become. Because he knew Saul was trying to kill him, right? So it was either kill or be killed, right? So David, you know, David's like, talk about the stars aligning. Man, this is, this is amazing, right? Saul walks into the cave, but he doesn't see David because, you know, David's, David can see him because they've been in the cave, so their eyes have already adjusted. Saul walks in. He can't see anything. He probably doesn't walk too far back, right? Takes his robe off, you know, takes care of business. So question, again, what do you think is going through David's mind at this point? He knows he's been anointed as king. He knows most of the people want him to be the king, but he also knows as long as Saul is king, He's not going to be king. He's going to be a fugitive wandering around out in the wilderness with no home, no place to call home. So from David's perspective, clearly God has answered his prayer and the prayers of the people, right? Now, we don't really know what was going through David's mind at this moment, but we do know what was going running through the minds of David's men. In fact, let's read it, 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to go to the bathroom. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding in the cave. Verse 4. Now is your time, David's men whispered to him. Today is the day the Lord was talking about when he said, I will certainly put Saul into your power to do as you wish. That's it. David, now's your opportunity. The waiting's finally over. In an instant, you'll be the new king and we'll be your cabinet members. Let's kill this king and, and go home. Let's, we can finally go home. 
And not only that, th think, about the, think, think, think about the optics of this scenario that I'm about to describe for you. Think about how this would look, all right? All of Saul's armies down in the valley there, bored, yawned, waiting for the king to get back from using the bathroom, right? So they're down there, and all of a sudden, David walks out with Saul's head. Yoo-hoo, guys, new sheriff in town. And at that moment, every single one of those soldiers, everyone would know and recognize David as the king. That's just how things worked back then. So just think about how powerful that would have been, right? But if you know the story, you know that that's not how the story played out. As the story unfolds, David, David felt something else besides that testosterone and adrenaline of getting ready to finally take ownership of what God had called him to do and anointed him to do. But David felt something else besides that adrenaline. He felt tension. He felt tension. Verse 4, Samuel, for Samuel 24. Then David crept forward and quietly slid off the bottom of Saul's robe. So David sneaks up on Saul while he's re relieving himself. <laughs> but instead of slitting his throat, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. Can, can, now, can you imagine the rest of David's men back at the back of the cave watching him? They think he's going to go up and kill Saul. He gets up there, and he stops, and he picks up the bottom of his robe and cuts it. And he turns around to come back, and the guys are sorry, no, no. What are you doing, David? What are you doing? All right. Why, David? Verse 5 tells us why. 1 Samuel 24, 5. But then his conscience, then his conscience began bothering him. Literal translation, don't miss this. David paid attention to the tension. You see that? He paid attention to the tension. The ESV puts it this way. And after, afterward, David's heart struck him. You, you ever, you ever, have you ever been contemplating a decision and, and you feel a ping in your heart? So just a little, you know, something there. Just doesn't have to be huge, but there's just a little, little ping there in your heart. Right? With David, there was a hesitation, a tension that, that, that didn't make any sense considering the circumstances. I mean, surely, God, I mean, this, all, this, this has you written all over it, God. But David paid attention to the tension, and suddenly he stopped. And in an instant, David was able to reframe his situation and see it through God's eyes. Those of you who attend here regularly, how often do you hear Kyle pray, Lord, help us to see as you see? I've even referenced it before. That's a great prayer. That is a great prayer to pray every day. Lord, help us to see as you see. Because, see, it doesn't matter how good, how perfect, or how right the situation looks to us. What matters is how does God see this? How does God view this? So somewhere between the back of the cave where he was hiding and the bottom of Saul's robe, the hem of Saul's robe, David sees the situation from a completely different perspective. And suddenly, suddenly that tension, that hesitation that made no sense before made perfect sense. As David sneaks up on Saul, he was conscience-stricken. Instead of slitting Saul's throat, he cuts off a piece of his robe that was laying on the ground. He goes back to his men, who I'm sure were confused. 
probably a little angry. You know, David's got some explaining to do, right? David's got some explaining to do to his men, which is exactly what he does in verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now, wait, wait, wait. Time out, David. Wait, 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 wait. Three minutes ago, this guy was your arch enemy. Now he's the Lord's anointed? What's going on here? What happened? What changed? When you read verse 7, it's clear that if David wasn't going to kill Saul, his men would. Look at this. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to. And they were going to kill him. It's just like, all right, David, you're not going to do it. We'll do it. But David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David was oh so close, oh so close to doing something that would make him his own worst enemy and throw his life off course for who knows how long. So close. So close. Question, then we'll get back to the story. Are you so close? Is there something that you're so close to? And in a lot of ways, it seems like it's God's will, but, 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 but there, you've got that ping in your heart, a little bit of tension, you know, it could be the spouse, your spouse, maybe not, if you're married, it could be them, you know, kind of pushing back, you know. Are you ignoring that tension, that internal hesitation, while you're selling yourself on a bad idea? If so, can I make a suggestion? Would, would you at least hit pause for a moment, quit selling yourself on that, and... Pay attention to the tension. Because trust me, your heavenly Father, who loves you so much, is doing everything that he can to keep you from becoming your own worst enemy. But ultimately, that's a choice you have to make. That's a decision you have to make. But you'll never make the right decision unless you pay attention to the tension. Saul finishes his business, puts his robe back on, walks out of the cave, gets on his donkey. While he's getting back on his donkey, he hears a voice, a familiar voice coming from up by the cave that he just walked out of. And immediately everyone looks up toward the opening of the cave that Saul had just walked out of a few minutes before. And there stands David flanked by his men. And David bows, and this is amazing, David bows low in honor of the king. And then he stands up and he holds up the corner of Saul's robe. And in that moment, don't miss this. this. This is huge. In that moment, everybody knew, everybody, everybody there knew who the better man was. It was David. It was David. All right. David gives a little speech, and at the end of the speech, he says this. Now watch this closely. First Samuel 24, verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, I'm going to do the right thing. I will not take matters into my own hands. And because David paid attention to the tension, that, that little ding on his conscience, that little ping on his heart, in that moment, when most people probably would have rushed right by it, paid no attention to it, David decided, and, and, and this is where some of you are, but David decided not to use Saul's bad behavior as an excuse for his bad behavior. Because sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do that. So how about you? 
as you think about the option that you're considering, that, that big life change, maybe it's a career, uh, maybe it's a purchase, right? That, that, that thing that you're, you, you've been selling yourself on, right? You pretty much talked yourself into it. In fact, the, the wheels are already turning, man. Are you considering, are you considering behaving badly based on somebody else's bad behavior because of what they did to you? Are you selling yourself? Remember, you rarely have to sell yourself on the right thing to do. So now all eyes turn from David to Saul, and he's completely humiliated by David. But here's the interesting thing. He's not humiliated by David's military skill. He's humiliated by David's character, his humility. That, that, that's, what, that's what humiliated Saul. So Saul has no choice. He turns his army around, and he heads back to Jerusalem. That, dear ones, is the power of paying attention to the tension. Now, this selling ourselves and wrestling with tension looks different for all of us, but here's what I know for all of us, for all of us. It falls somewhere between having to tell your wife that you whiffed big time on a moving decision and deciding whether or not to kill a king, right? Somewhere in between those two is where we're all at, right? Or maybe you're the one standing by helplessly as you watch someone else become their own worst enemy through some poor choices. But listen, understand the principle is the same. What are you going to do with that tension? Here's my advice. Let it bother you. Don't rush by it. Sit on it. Let it bother you. Let it bother you. That tension just might be God's way of protecting you from becoming your own worst enemy. The Apostle Paul actually warned his young protege, Timothy, about this very thing. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 1.19. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been what? Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. Listen, dear ones. If you want to keep from becoming your own worst enemy and shipwrecking your faith, at some point, you have to ask the question, and here's your homework. Three questions. Number one, is there attention? Is there attention? Is there attention that deserves your attention? If, if something bothers you, let it bother you. Sit on it for a while. Don't rush by it. Right? Continue to pray about it. Right? Face it. Face it till it either goes away or you decide to go a different direction. A little patience can be the difference between successfully navigating God's will or becoming your own worst enemy by selling yourself on something that wasn't God's will for you at that time. So answering this question is like a, is like a preemptive strike against becoming your own worst enemy. Because every habit begins with the first time, every pattern begins with the first line, and every journey begins with the first step. That's how it works. Second question, when are you most prone to sell yourself on a bad idea? Where are you most prone to sell? And, and what does it sound like? You know, what, what's, what's your pitch? Sir, this could be an eye-opener because you know, you know how you are with yourself. You just need to be honest and own up to it, right? When are you most prone to sell yourself on a bad idea? Third question, what would it look like to explore rather than ignore your conscience? When that ping hits your heart, instead of ignoring it, why not quiet your soul before God and see if he's up to something? Why not pause Till you pinpoint the cause. And you can tweet that if you want to. Why not pause to pinpoint the cause? Right. 
Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Before I pray for you, I want to I ask you to do something, something we, we kind of do occasionally. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what part of this message was for you? Maybe some of you already know. Hopefully some of you. But if you're saying, if you're saying well, I don't, you know, that was a good word, you know, Pastor. But no, no, no. Just ask, If you took the time to come here, God wanted to say something to you. So just ask the Holy Spirit to say, what did you want to teach me from this lesson, from your word today? Lord, as we wrestle with and answer these questions, help us be honest with you and with ourselves so we can indeed see as you see. And as we do, help us, help us reframe our situation, our circumstance in a way that will help us trust you and, and in so doing, keep from becoming our own worst enemy. If you're here this morning, and maybe that tension you're feeling isn't for direction from God, but maybe for God. Maybe, maybe that tension's for God because you're not in a personal relationship with Christ right now. You might know about God, but you're not in an ongoing, growing relationship with him. If that's you, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where you can come to know him in a very personal and profound way. If you would just pray this prayer after me, just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. I know I can't fix myself, but I believe that you can. Your word says that if we confess with our mouth that, that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he rose from the dead, that we would be saved. So, so I'm making that confession right now. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, my Lord, that he rose from the dead for me. And right now I give you my life, Jesus, and I receive your life in return. Thank you for saving me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.